We'll be looking this morning in a couple different passages, so you can kind of keep your finger in James and your finger in Colossians and your finger also, well just, just be ready to turn your Bibles, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll do that. I want, I want to look this morning at an idea that kind of impacted my life fairly strongly about four or five years ago. We were working through a book called The Respectable Sins written by Jerry Bridges. And there was a chapter in there that especially caught my attention and caused me to take a look down inside of me probably in a way that I hadn't really thought about before. So I'd like to share that with you today. And when we think about this word, ungodliness, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? For, for my mind, when I think of ungodliness, it's wickedness, uh, really, really serious sins, you know, that the worst that could be done by any unbeliever, maybe perversions of all sorts. I, I would think of it in scales that go from, you know, maybe bad to worse, to just absolutely horrible and unthinkable. Maybe from a not-so-nice person to somebody who's just wicked evil. And this, this morning, I want to look at three things. One, the working definition and the reality of ungodliness that's very possible inside of the Christian. And I want to look at three common areas or three common compartments, if you would, of ungodliness that could be part of the Christian life. And then thirdly, if we have time, we'd like to look at how to fight the sin of ungodliness. So first of all, I want to look at a, de a definition, and when you think of ungodly, and English is not one of my um, best subjects in school, in case you haven't figured that out by now, but I do understand this part of it, that the prefix un, or un, in English means not. So ungodly means not godly, or no God, or without God. So a definition that was offered by Bridges, and we'll work through today, is this. Ungodliness is living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God. Or living an everyday life with little or no thought of God's will and little and no thought of God's glory, and little and no thought of one's dependence on God as we go through life, and as we think, and as we plan, and as we live. So ungodliness in this sense really isn't necessarily interchangeable with wickedness like we might think. In fact, we might look at it a little different way today, that ungodliness is an attitude or a heart condition, where, where wickedness might describe the actual acts that come up out of that. So we might say that wickedness ends up being the cause, if you would, of ungodliness. But it might not look like major wickedness, wicked, uh, wickedness if you would, in a Christian's life. In fact, we might just kind of skip right over it and not even really consider it. We know from Romans that all people know there's a God, Romans chapter 1. 
All people have to do something with their knowledge of God. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, or they push it down, or they squash it underneath. For what can be known about God is plain to them, and it's plain to us, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so that they're without excuse, so God would lay this at the whole world and say, they all know there's a God, whether they'll admit it or not. And they have to do something with that, and many will suppress and push it down and put it underneath them. And he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God, but they became futile in their thinking or a thought process that would go round and round and never come to its final end or its final expected end. So they're futile in their thinking. And, in their, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And the question is, can we, even as Christians, in parts of our lives, in areas of our life, suppress what we know to be true of God for benefit of self? And so the discussion today is really not about our righteous behavior, like in contrast to what wicked behavior would be. It's not about really what we're seeing on the outside of each other. But it's more inward look of this, how relevant or irrelevant is God to every motive and every thought of our lives. Makes a difference between the desires and actions of a Christian because things can be a certain way on the outside, but a motivation can be completely different on the inside. So ungodliness in the discussion today is related again to our attitude. And when we talk about unrighteous acts, that's that's the actual thing that we're doing, but there's something down below that's causing it or relates to it. And so we'll look at godliness or ungodliness as it affects our attitude. We, We might make this statement, nice unbelievers are not generally wicked and on the outside, but they are ungodly because they're unbelievers. They don't have the life of God in them yet at this point. So their thoughts and their actions are ultimately all about themselves, even in the nice and kind things that they're doing. They're doing it because they've chosen to do that. It's good for them to do that. They're not doing it because they know God and they love God and they're trying to accomplish God's purpose. They have no desire really to please him, even though they might say that they believe in a God or something beyond themselves. And the question is, are Christians capable of being guilty of this same sin of ungodliness in some part of our life? We're new creatures in Christ. We're fully capable of fighting sin in our lives. I think at the same time, because of the sin nature that dwells in us, we're perfectly capable of living parts of our lives in an ungodly manner. 
and be totally content about it. So how does that happen? There's a, a um, let's say, a, a definition of a word that's used in secular psychology that actually has a lot of biblical understanding to it, but they won't, they won't put any Bible with it. They call it compartmentalization. Here, here's the secular definition. It's a defense mechanism in which people mentally separate conflicting thoughts or separate conflicting emotions or they separate conflicting experiences to avoid the discomfort of contradiction. In other words, they're saying as humans, we, we don't like contradiction between what we are feeling and what we are believing and what we are experiencing with, with, with something else. We want everything to be harmony inside of us. They go on to say this. This uncomfortable state where we're in contradiction about something we believe compared to something that we're doing is called cognitive dissonance. So what do you think the Bible calls that? It shortens it to something like this. Guilt. <laughs> we feel guilt. Something that we're doing is not consistent with something that we're believing, and we feel guilt. They would call it cognitive dissonance. Dissonance. So here, here's the description of it. It's the discomfort a person feels when their behavior does not align with their values or with their beliefs. And it's one that humans try to avoid in one of two ways. By modifying certain beliefs or modifying certain behaviors. Or sometimes they just compartmentalize it. They just put it in a box over here so that it's neutral and it doesn't have to be dealt with at all. So, so in essence, can, can the Christian do this? In other words, can we have a belief that we've learned in Scripture about God and at the same time have behavior that's inconsistent with that belief and for us feel guilt because we're violating or sinning against God? And in order to deal with this disharmony in us, in order to deal with the guilt in us, we move in one of two directions. We either have to change our behavior to become conformed to our belief, to, to erase that guilt. Or we have to change our belief in some way to make the guilt we're feeling about what we're doing or thinking or what's motivating us be acceptable in our mind and be able to go on with life. Either one of those things could happen. So when a Christian compartmentalizes an aspect of their life or a thought or a motivation of everyday life so that God's not at the center of it anymore, this, this thing I put over here that's neutral, I just don't just consider God or his word in it, I just kind of do it. It's my area. It's the area of freedom, the area of preference, the area that nobody's allowed to to challenge with another individual. I put it in that box. 
So now I have part of my life, I have part of my motivation, I have part of my belief system that doesn't have God at the center of it anymore. Because I don't think it relates to God at all, quite possibly. Let me make a statement, and, and you, you tell me if it's acceptable or not. You may not know this, but I, I am somewhat of an inventor. And I have made a product that I think can really sell. So I would like to take a, a year sabbatical from ministry, and I would like to go to California. My daughter is laughing at me because she knows I'm not an inventor. So don't, don't let her fool you. I am an inventor. And I am deciding that I'd like to go to California because there's a segment of population there that I believe would be really receptive to my invention. And I'm going because I'm intending to gain profit and then come back to ministry after that's done. Any problem with my thoughts? Any difficulty with my thoughts? Am I violating anything in Scripture that you can just throw out at me and say, hey, time out? Maybe not. I mean, you might throw some things at me, but they might, they might not stick in that regard. Turn to James chapter 4, if you would. I want to look at a couple examples where a Christian could actually be ungodly in their thought and behavior, and I really think about it. And the first one would be making plans without God at the center of our thoughts. In James chapter 4 and verse 13, James begins by saying this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we, go, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. The reality is when we look at that at face value, there's no real issue with somebody going into business. There's nothing dishonorable or ungodly about going into business. Or even selecting a particular town that you think might be valuable to work in. And there's nothing wrong with deciding that you're going to make a profit or work to be successful at that business. In fact, there's really not an issue with the fact that you're making a plan. Proverbs tells us where there's no vision, people perish. So what is James' issue that he's addressing? Look at verse 14. Yet... You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. A mist is a type of vapor that quickly can be um, dispelled by the wind. So it's here and then it's gone real, in a really short time. And James is saying, in human frailty, you're making these plans, but you, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You have no idea what the future is. You actually have no control of making your own future. Also, in our humanness, there's the fact that we, we don't know how long we're going to live. We, we don't even know if we'll make it to the city that we decided we would go to. In other words, what James is really trying to get at 
that God's been left out of the whole, the whole scenario. You know, when I think of human frailty, what, one of the people that comes to my mind, it was my son Hudson's, one of his favorite characters. He, he was Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. And, and at an early age, you know, you'll go outside and he would have a snake in his hand going, by crocky dad, look at the snake. Isn't he beautiful? And I'm going, whatever he is, it's okay because he's a garter snake. When we went to South Carolina, things became a little bit different. Because then I hear him hollering, Dad, Dad, come on and see the snake I got trapped. And I come around the corner and he's got a rake and some sticks and he's trapped a copperhead. And he says, by crocky, Dad, isn't it a beautiful snake? And I said, by crockety, Hudson, we're going to kill it. (laughs) Dad, it's beautiful. Why would you kill this snake? I said, because it's full of poison, and it doesn't really care about you, and you're irritating it, and if you pick it up, it's going to bite you, and you'll die. And I don't think you and I can live in harmony with the snake this close to the house. So he dies. He would kill me in a heartbeat. Well, Dad, kill the snake then. Get rid of it. Its beauty was left. When I think of Steve Irwin and watch all the different things that he did and the risk he took with alligators and with crocodiles and with snakes and and Komodo dragons, and everything else that could kill instantly. I would have put all my bet that if he were to die, it was going to be from one of those. And yet what took his life? A stingray. Probably the most gentle thing that he worked with in all all of his career. Just did the unthinkable and struck him in the chest, and he died. Do do we really have control of life? Do do we really know our future? Do we really have the ability to bring about all those things that we say we're going to bring about step by step and plan by plan? And James would say, no, you don't. So why are you motivated as though you do? In fact, why do you speak as though you do? I think what James is really going at is that there's a self-focused confidence in the people that are making the plan. Nothing wrong with the plan. Nothing wrong with the goal. Nothing wrong with any of their decisions in themselves. These are natural things in life. But it was the attitude in which they were being made, the confidence in which they were being made, James says this, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live to do this or that. And just by adding those words, because those words can be kind of trite, you can get in a habit of saying, well, I'm going to have a picnic tomorrow. It will, Lord willing. And Lord willing, I'll do this. If it's just a phrase that gets added on to things that we say, it doesn't have a whole lot of meat to it. I think what James is trying to say is this ought to be your whole thought and your whole motivation. If God is willing, and if it's according to God's will, 
here's what I'm planning to do. I mean, we might even want to consider, if we're going into business, why even are we wanting to make a profit? Well, that's what you do business for. But what are you going to do with the profit? Is it to fill our barns? Is it to fill our storehouses? Or is it so we might enjoy the privilege of being able to share and to give and all these other things that come with the responsibility of what God gives to us? So I think James is attacking that. He's attacking the plans that are being made without a legitimate understanding, without a legitimate center on God and on his will. In fact, that would be the next thing. He says, as it is in verse 16, you boast in your arrogance, is how James Lucas said it. And all such boasting is actually evil. So whoever knows to do the right thing, says James, and fails to do it for him and his sin, so he encourages them to do the right thing, which is going to be not changing what's happening on the outside, but changing the motivation that what is happening on the inside in that particular situation. There, there, there's another issue that would cause ungodliness in our thoughts. And that'd be living life without seeking or discerning God's will in it. It's one thing to say, here's what we're going to do, and the confidence in our ability to do it. It's another thing to do it without even really taking time to discern whether it's God's will or not. Look, if you would, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. It's interesting the focus of Paul's prayer for the Colossian people. He says, and so from the day we heard, Colossians 1.9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you all. In fact, if my understanding's correct, Paul's never met this congregation. He's just heard about them and he's praying for them. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Why is he wanting this? Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, and then being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, because that's where it's coming from, according to his glorious might, for what purpose? For all endurance. And for all patience and doing it with joy. I mean, this is, this is an object of Paul's prayer. Maybe, maybe we could say this too, that prayer without seeking God's will will become what kind of prayer? Because I think this is in everything. We're seeking God's will, as the verse says, in everything. So just think about it even in, in prayer itself. If I were praying without seeking God's will, what would my prayers look like? They would probably be all about my wants and all about my needs. That would be the majority of all my prayer because God's here to help me. It wouldn't probably be about God opening my heart and literally showing me where I'm wrong where I'm outside of his word. It's not going to be prayer going, God, make me sensitive. 
through the sin that's in my life. I mean, think about it. As I thought of my own life, I went, man, when I just evaluate my own life and I think about my prayer life, which I think most of us would say often just stinks. Not all of us. I think most of us say, it's just not good, if we're honest. It was about my needs. It was about my desires. It was about wanting God to help me with certain things in life that I was wanting to attain. And I thought about the times I just spent asking God to forgive me of my sin as I went through the day. And it was pretty meager in comparison. And thirdly, another aspect where we might be ungodly and not even see the ungodliness would be being content with a meager desire to develop an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, you, you, you have periods in time. I have periods of time. I mean, we can, we can hide it on the outside as we go through the motions. But I have periods of time in my life, even, even in ministry, it, does, it doesn't escape pastors. Where you, you just don't feel so desiring. You, you don't always have the joy of the Lord just flowing out of you struggling inside with those things. And sometimes we can come to a point where we become content with the meagerness of the desire to move towards God. And then you read Psalms like this, Psalms 42, 1 through 2, from the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And when shall I come and appear before God? And sometimes I got to drag myself <laughs> to come to church to worship with other people, the God who saved me. There's days like that. And sometimes there's weeks like that. Sometimes it turns into months. And then it just becomes a habit of life. Psalm 63, 1 through 4. Psalm of David. Best we can tell, this is David when Absalom was, was attempting to take over the throne from him. Psalm 63, 1 through 4. The Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary, weary land where there is no water. In other words, God, I can't live without you. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power, beholding your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. In other words, the relationship with God and the love of God is better than anything that life can offer. In fact, there won't be satisfaction with life if that's not the center of the heart and the thought and the motivation. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. And David again in Psalms 27, in verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. And David's just shrinking everything down and saying, this one thing I seek for with my whole life, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, because that's where they came to meet God in their time. That I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and just inquire at his temple. Bridges makes a statement, and I wrote it down as a quote. A daily God-centered life can only be developed in the context of an ever-growing intimate relationship with God. In other words, you won't, you won't have one without the other. A daily God-centered life, and this means everything, can only be developed in the context of an ever-growing intimate relationship with God. So here's some, here's some personal questions. Do you and I have ungodliness in us? Do, do we have areas of life where his will is not considered? Where his nature and his character is not considered? Where, where we go on life without consideration of him in it? Or things that we might have put in a compartment that we just don't even want to run through that grid? Because <laughs> we love them and we want them. Maybe more so than we want God. Maybe a better question to ask is if we have ungodliness in us. Because if we're still here on this earth and we're not completely glorified at this point, we will have ungodliness in us. Because when we're saved, we, we move into the spectrum with the life of God in us. So we're not unbelievers anymore. But on the other side of the spectrum is glorification when everything about us is centered on God. And we're having totally satisfaction in God. And we're probably somewhere in between those two spectrums as we go through our progressive sanctification. As we're moving forward and becoming more like Christ. And all the way through it, there just might be some of these things that conflict what we know to be true in Scripture to what the desire we would want to do or have in our own life, and we choose the other. And now we've got to deal with the disharmony that the Bible would call guilt or sin. And we either modify what we believe to justify what we pursue, or we modify what we've been pursuing and we cling on to what we believe and pursue God. We're, we're going to have to rectify it one of those two ways. So how do you fight ungodliness? Turn if you would and we'll close with this passage. Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy. Paul's going to say to Timothy, you fight ungodliness by training towards the goal of godliness. In other words, you fight ungodliness by pursuing with your whole heart and being godliness. Chalmers would say that that's the principle of um, pulling out one thing and filling it with another, like a bottle. You ever have a bottle of half-filled pop and you put it in your sink because you're rinsing it out? What happens when you just keep pouring water into the, into the bottle and it starts to spill out, especially if it's red pop? You know, it goes from red to pink to just faint pink. And next thing you know, you just have clear water. But this was his thought about how a person grows in Christianity. 
It's, it's on the proactive side. You, you train for godliness. You pursue godliness. So how do we do that? Well, look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, if you put these things before your brothers, and there was a, a bunch of things he had already worked through with them, and saying to Timothy, if you'll teach these to the brothers in your congregation, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained, and the word right there gives the idea of being educated. And beyond just being educated, being nourished. <laughs> being built up, if you would. In what? In the words of faith. And of the good doctrine that you have followed. So one of the first things is to be educated and nourished in the word. This is why the Bible becomes so central. This is why everything's got to run through its grid. So be educated and nourished in the word. And then number two, you got to train. <laughs> There's work that has to be done. It doesn't just happen naturally. The Christian has to work at it. It's something that never stops. It's an effort that is always being expended. You ever try and get in shape? I mean, it's New Year's Eve. I won't ask for a show of hands, but, but mine is going up. Is one of your goals to be getting back into shape this year? It's usually one of mine average. Got to get back in shape again. But what usually happens? Well, you start out strong. Then you run into some difficulties. Then you run into some schedule conflicts. And then next thing you know, it's put off to the side again. So I take that and I put it in the compartment. God doesn't really care if I get in shape. And I can deal with it now. That might be a, a minor thing. But this idea of training for, for godliness... Again, it comes not only with, with a plan, it comes with work. 1 Timothy 4.7 says this. Have nothing to do with irreverent or have nothing to do has the idea, don't give up time to this. Don't waste time on this. Don't give time to irreverent or godless silly myths or unsupported old wives' tales. Don't put a whole lot of time investing in something that really has no reality to it. Really has no bearing on it for life in God or life in Christ. <coughs> Rather in pursuing all these other things, narrow it down to one as the primary. Rather train yourself for godliness. And train yourself has this idea. Comes from a culture of athletics in that early world. It was preparing to compete for the games. By, by training, it would also include commitment, like, like never stopping commitment. This is why sometimes it has a good idea, you know, when you're going to go to the gym, you take somebody with you, or you do it with somebody, so they call you when you're not there and drag you out of bed and get you there to help train, and after it's all done, you go, man, thank you. Thank you for doing it. It's the same spiritually. It's good to not do this training by yourself, but to have a whole body involved in it. It implies commitment, consistency, discipline. 
It's training in all aspects, strength, endurance, the mind. And it was interesting listening to a guy talk about the strategy of, of uh, one of the Mr. Olympias. And they asked him, what was the hardest thing about your training to conquer? And his comment was, the knife and fork. I'm going, knife and fork? Yeah, what you eat. The, the daily discipline of being so regulated on what you eat was so important that all the other stuff that he was doing with the weightlifting and everything else would be counteracted by not controlling the fork and the knife. So it's in all, in all areas in a spiritual sense. This demands zeal, motivation. It demands desire that leads to a commitment and ultimately bears out in action or it's just something we talk about or it's just something we wish would happen in our lives. And Timothy goes on to say, or Paul goes on the same verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, in other words, there is real physical value, and it's a good thing to do in disciplining the body to maintain, maintain strength and vigor and health. Why? What's well, good for me? No. <laughs> so you can serve God. So that you can keep working for him. So bodily exercise is of some value, ma mainly for temporary here while we have this physical body. But he says godliness is of value in every way. Godliness is of value in every aspect of life. One commentator describes it like this. Godliness is not just something for Timothy to affirm and commend. That's, that's the outward part of it. It's to suffuse his own being. And I don't know why they use words like that, because I have to look them up. Suffuse means this, to let it infiltrate, permeate. Maybe you could say, ooze all in you until it takes over every single part of his being, this pursuing of godliness. Every facet of light is to be taken over for the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of God and what his will is and understanding his word so we can accurately discern it in the differing situations we find ourselves in. Physical discipline is of value, but spiritual exercise, spiritual training, Paul says it holds promise not just for this present life, but for the whole life to come. It has an eternal value to it too. So in 2024, if math is right, maybe, maybe my math is right. Math is always right. Usually I make a mistake in it somewhere. We're going to have approximately 8,760 minutes that we will give an account for in the year 2024. And they're going to steadily roll off the conveyor belt like a package. And bloom, bloom, bloom. And the question is, how many of those can just go in the neutral box? How many of them will we stand there and go, I think I know what God wants me to do, but 
and we adjust what we believe to allow our behavior to be, be part of life without there being a conflict in the mind. So may, may I challenge us for this year? I, I don't know where you are spiritually. I know where I am at spiritually, but probably not to the extent God does. So would it not be wise to have God or ask God to just search our hearts, to search our minds, to explore the boxes that we got there sealed up, to shed light on our motives, because outside everything can look good in church regularly, witnessing, even witnessing to people. We're going to tear this Bible reading thing up this year. It's just going to be so part of our lives. And yet God knows what's going on inside the heart and the true motivations. So may we ask God and pray to God that we would consider him in every facet of life this year that we might ask for the strength of his spirit as we consider him in every aspect of life this year. May we make the most of all the minutes that we have. May we not break training and godliness to compartmentalize things. May we not let even one minute go by that we justify in pursuing our own desires at the expense of contradicting the word of God or ignoring or shoving down the Holy Spirit. May we see what God does as he transforms our lives, not only as individuals, but as a church. And you know what I think one of the outcroppings of this is? I mean, when you're just excited about God, genuinely decided about God, you, you have to share that with people. You can't not share that with people. So you know what happens to discipleship? That, that first prong, we've been, we've been focusing a lot on discipleship and training and building each other up because that is part of the ministry, training each other to obey the word. You know what the front half of discipleship is? You go into all the world and not just mature disciples, but as you mature, you know what you start doing more and more? You make disciples. May, may we pray also this year as we're working on discipleship and the building of each other up in Christ that God may allow us to have impact in the life. May, maybe start out small. <laughs> in at least one individual, that God might be so kind as we are willing to come alongside them and invest in them and have opportunity to share the gospel with them. Because all we can do is water. And all we can do is plant, but who gives the increase? God. You can't beat somebody over the head into Christianity with a two-by-four. God's got to do a work in their heart. But maybe pray that God would give us the opportunity to see one soul come to him this year. As we train for godliness, we, we don't leave that part out of it either. Let's pray. Lord God, you are an amazing God, especially because of who you are. And it's almost incredible in our minds knowing who you are, the patience you have with us. 
So, Lord, help us this year as we dive into your word and as we invest in each other's lives and as we invest in the world around us with your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would do what Hebrews tells us, that you, you would open up our inside. And you would allow your word through your spirit to discern the actual intents of our hearts. And Lord God, that you would be so kind to lay us bare so that we might see what you see. And help us, dear God, if we do, not to put that in a compartment. Help us not to try and diminish it's a pact, and in fact, Lord, just help us to yield. And as a yielded people, dear God, may we grow not only individually into a, the image of Christ, but may our whole church body to the community around us represent Christ and his love in a very accurate way, especially amidst all the things that are going on around us now. We pray, dear God, that that might be a very vivid light and we would give you all praise and give you all...